Welcome to Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 162 and it's the 4th of July 2021. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? The main Star Warsy thing I've done has been to finish reading The Rising Storm by Kevin Scott, which is the latest novel in the High Republic series. And it's a bit of a banger. It's quite exciting. So, yeah, I really do sincerely give it a hearty recommendation. Um, because, yeah, I was genuinely shocked by some of the developments in that book. It really went places. Ooh. And, yeah, I obviously can't talk about those places, especially not to Kirsty, who has not read the book. Um, but, yeah, I can't wait for you to read the book, Kirsty, because, yeah, it, it just does things that I am excited to talk about. So, yeah can't say much else but yeah it was a good one and it was a real page turner you know I was like oh my god what is happening next and it's nice to have that feeling because I'm a bit of a slow reader nowadays you know it takes me quite a while to finish a book but this one I really ripped through it and yeah that was quite a nice sensation sounds juicy yeah I would definitely (laughs) describe it in those terms Mm. yeah no it's good I'm looking forward to it yeah no definitely and we've also had quite a few weeks of quite a lot of Star Wars news too which has been unusual and not a feeling that's familiar in recent times (laughs) Um, yes because Leslie Headland has given a few interviews about the acolyte and her general relationship with Star Wars which have all been really interesting Um, and there's also been a panel about Star Wars Visions at the Anime Expo and yeah we're going to be talking about all of that soon so yeah hopefully we have an exciting episode as well as of course our battle for Endor spotlight which we're both extremely excited about and it might include a reenactment so yeah I hope people are excited I think most people are excited. I had noticed one or two people expressing their displeasure at us talking about the Ewoks so extensively. Wait until we get to the episode by episode deep dive into the Ewok animated series. Where we break down the themes and the like deep character work of the animated cartoon. I wouldn't say it's like slim pickings at this point. Because obviously there's a lot of Star Wars news coming out. Like you said, you just read the new high republic novel so we're getting the second wave of that um but we are kind of dipping our toes into more out there aspects of star wars like now the sequel trilogy is over in that so it just felt like the right time to visit the ewok movies so we know it's not going to be of interest to everyone that's fine you can skip a couple of episodes if you like yeah no hard feelings we're we're just having fun with it yeah no exactly because yeah like we obviously do go a little bit into the like deeper implications of these things but for the most part it is just about having fun you know because they are fundamentally quite light and enjoyable movies really Uh, (laughs) would you say the battle for endor is light that's true actually harrowing yeah (laughs) you know it is quite traumatic which i've expressed in my raw notes from the viewing with lots of unhappy smiley faces (laughs) mainly in relation to what happens to sindel because that poor kid is put through the ringer in battle for endor but yeah all of that is to come so i'll shut up because otherwise we're just going to start doing that now and it's not the time okay cool so let's move into the news um so yeah we have two separate leslie headland interviews and essentially i just really point people towards reading those interviews in full because they're very detailed and they provide lots of great insights into 
Leslie's introduction to Star Wars, her ongoing relationship with it, and you know what shapes her relationship with that world and those stories. And yeah, it's just really fascinating stuff. So the first interview we're going to be talking about is with the AV Club, and I'll try to link to that in the show notes. Um, yeah, what did you think about this interview with Leslie, Kirsty? It's just a delight to read her thoughts on Star Wars and like her experiences with the franchise through the decades because obviously mm. we all have pretty personal relationships with them we all come to them at different times in our life depending on our age when things comes out and how we relate to them and how we maybe revisit them when we're older and see things a bit differently and um yeah i just i just love even you know even people who aren't um involved in creating star wars i just love hearing about their experiences with it but this was definitely interesting because obviously we're anticipating something from her in the universe soon um so yeah just a pleasure to read yeah it was a really great and fascinating insight into her like relationship with star wars so yeah go and check it out basically and yeah a big part of the av club interview is leslie talking about her experiences as a gay woman and how that like shapes her attitude and going into star wars and the importance of telling more diverse stories about lots of different types of people um so yeah could you read out the first parts of the interview that i have highlighted kirsty now you have the opportunity to both talk the talk and walk the walk with the show obviously i don't know if there's going to be any queer characters i can only hope but you've put together a writer's room What were your guiding principles there, and what were you looking for in a writer? First of all, I really wanted people that were different than me. I certainly didn't want a room full of people that were just agreeing with me, not ideologically, but artistically. People that kind of had different writing styles or were interested in different things, all that kind of stuff. But there was a certain intention in terms of putting together a room that I felt like were people that I hadn't been in a room with before, if that makes sense. I don't think I can go much further into that, But like, oh, I haven't had this experience yet. And because I think it's weird that I haven't had this experience yet. What I also learned about hiring my room is that everyone's fandom was very different. No one had the same experience with Star Wars. There were people like myself that were like later in life, Dave Filoni acolytes. I literally had one writer that was like, I've never seen any of them. I've never seen any Star Wars media. And she's texting me before we started the room. She's like, Luke and Leia are brother and sister. What the... And it was so great because I would really love to know from someone who was not fully immersed in this fandom, what do you think about the pitch we just made? So while she did her due diligence and did a lot of background work and research, at the same time, she was somebody that we would kind of talk to and say, okay, so if we take all the kind of signifiers out of it, and this is Star Wars version of X, what does it mean to you? She would be able to give some feedback. Well, I'm kind of wondering what's going on with this character. And in this scene, I'm wondering why so-and-so isn't saying this. So that was what I really wanted, an active conversation between my writers and myself, and not so much a room full of people that would kind of just automatically agree with what I say. Yeah, and that to me is like the dream answer that I'd want from the showrunner of a Star Wars TV show, because, yeah, I, I think so many times we've seen this emphasis when it comes to like hiring people to work on Star Wars projects about how oh they love Star Wars they're the biggest fan of Star Wars they've been watching it since they were in nappies and you know all this sort of stuff and like that is great you know it's awesome to have people who love Star Wars working on Star Wars but I think it is so critical to have people who just don't know anything about it to be honest you know and have this completely fresh perspective 
I think that's mm. so valuable because ultimately they need to make sense of stories, not just as Star Wars stories. And I think that's what having that new voice in the room can do. So yeah, I was really encouraged to read these comments. Same. And for me, and I'm sure you probably agree as well, it's not just about um, being familiar with Star Wars as like its own story, but being familiar with the fandom as well and maybe like what other fans value. Yeah. Because inevitably it feels like certain fandom voices are heard while others aren't. And I guess she alludes to this too with like that notion of having some diversity like ideologically and artistically like people with different points of view that's really important so i'm really interested to see what they put together yeah no definitely there's another great quote from leslie a bit earlier in the interview where she says star wars has always been a little bit of a rorschach test of a piece of art a lot of the time is what you decide it is I think The Matrix is a really good example of that as well. You have fans that really run the gamut in terms of their political and social identities, and yet it's still a piece of art that really speaks to people on a very base level. So to me, seeing a fandom as passionate as Star Wars, it's certainly intimidating, but it's also understandable because it's a great work of art. And to be a part of it is, yes, it's daunting, but it's also something that, if I didn't feel passionate about my love for it, then possibly it would be something that was too frustrating or scary. But because I feel so passionate about it, I know that my love of it is rooted in a strong point of view. And again, I honestly, we could just read out this whole interview because all the quotes are so great and I just love reading Leslie's perspective on these things. Mm. But yeah, I, I really appreciated that in particular because that idea of Star Wars as a Rorschach test, I found that so much in my own experience of the fandom and how it's not like there's one Star Wars fandom, there's like myriad Star Wars fandoms, you know, all mm -hmm. kind of like coexisting with this strange friction between them all the time. And yeah, I think she really understands that and captures that well in her answers. And that was really refreshing because yeah, Star Wars and Star Wars fandom are anything but monolithic, basically. I agree. It was really refreshing to hear a creator kind of aware of that and acknowledging it and yeah, appreciating the fact that the fandom is so vast and everyone has their thing that they relate to in their specific way and people can love the same thing, but maybe for very different reasons. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the frustrations and the joys of Star Wars, isn't it? Because I think we all recognise that we all love Star Wars but sometimes it's like people talk past each other in that they don't understand what the other person sees in Star Wars exactly. And I'm even guilty of that myself sometimes, you know, like mm. there's obviously certain fans who are super into it for the cosplay, for example. And I'll never fully get that because I can totally appreciate the hard work and the artistry of those costumes. But I'm just like, gosh, I don't have time for that. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> whereas other people would look at what, you and I do, Kirsty, and think, gosh, I wouldn't be able to do a podcast every two weeks. <laughs> you know, and yeah, it's just fascinating to me. I think that's why I've really enjoyed doing those recent episodes we've done on Star Wars fandom, because it is just an interesting topic in its own right to look at that and how it's evolved. Yeah, definitely. I also thought her um, use of the Matrix as an example was a really interesting one. Mm, um, yeah. I know you're a big fan of the Matrix, as am I and presumably Leslie is too, but it's another incredibly popular piece of art created by queer women. You know, it's obviously um, a very popular piece of art within the queer community, but also 
has this huge fandom that kind of goes beyond that and is read very differently by maybe a more straight white male audience you see what i mean yeah no it's fascinating because obviously certain concepts from the matrix like the whole red pool thing that unfortunately has really been co-opted by certain actors shall we say mm. i don't want to go down that rabbit hole deeply you know but i think that may be what she's hinting at yes i also think that's <laughs> what she's getting at too um and yeah it's just fascinating when you think about those people and how those people like respond to the matrix and understand it and then like at the other end of the spectrum you have people reading it as a trans allegory and i can't remember if it was lily or lana who gave an interview about it i think it was lily um but yeah just explicitly saying that yes it is this trans allegory you know which is as definitive as it gets and yeah you can't imagine that going down well with some of those red pill-esque style matrix fans but that doesn't change the intent that was behind the story you know and its state is a subversive story but it also won't do anything to change the perspective for those people who have that more i don't know socially conservative read on it you know it's just fascinating i find it really interesting definitely yeah and then could you read out the next part of the interview i've highlighted kirsty I know the show is still under wraps, but if there's one takeaway about what you bring to the universe, it's that it's never too late to be part of Star Wars. I've never regretted loving Star Wars. It's always given me something at some point in my journey, whether it's just creative inspiration or some sort of emotional catharsis, or something that just makes me realise and become a better version and a more fuller version of Leslie. It's always been a source of incredible fun, excitement and joy for me. But I also think that as a result of that, people can feel a certain ownership over it, Not unlike religion, where someone says, well, that's not really what they meant. Again, having been raised in a very Christian household, I know people get nervous. Well, what are you saying? What do you mean? Are you saying that what I believe is not right? And it's like, well, what we're saying is that it's up to interpretation. My goal here would be to create something that people can interpret in a couple of different ways, as opposed to there being one right way to love or consume a Star Wars product. I think you should, hopefully, be able to utilize it depending on where you are in your life and where you are in your fandom. Yeah, no, and again, I just love what she's saying, you know, and the fact that her personal background, you know, growing up in a very religious, repressive home, how much that informs her read on the whole thing and how that relationship with souls is constantly evolving over the years, depending on what she needs to get out from it. Again, I just find so much truth in it all, you know, and it's just awesome to have someone talk about souls in such a personal way. So I think often it's just framed through like the admiration of and worship of George Lucas, you know, and what he created. And there's just this like reverence and treating it like something that's quite distant and like wrapped up in all this mystique, you know. And I feel like Leslie's kind of trying to unwrap some of that and glom onto it in a more direct and personal way. So, mm. yeah, I really appreciate like what she seems to be going into the acolyte with because, yeah, it. It makes me much more excited for the show and I was already very excited to begin with. So, yeah, I'm really glad these interviews are coming out. Yeah, they're doing their job because, as as you say, I'm getting more excited. And it was like the the one I was most excited for when they announced all of those new projects coming up. Yeah. Um, So I was already excited because I've loved Leslie's previous work and I love the concept or at least like the, the tidbits that they've given us so far. And obviously there are more that we're about to discuss. Um. But yeah, I just, I can't wait to watch this show. Yeah, 
No, it sounds awesome. Um, is there anything else from the AV Club interview you want to bring up, Kirsty, or should we just go straight into the one with the rap? There's lots of great stuff there. I really recommend people go and read it. She goes into um, much more extensively, like her history of like getting in through the the Zahn novels, so obviously kind of coming in through Legends, um, and how she's kind of like related to the prequels and that going back, um, and lots more about how she relates to it as a queer woman as well. So, really recommend reading them if you haven't already. Yeah. No, definitely. I can curve everything Kirsty just said. <laughs> Read the whole article, please. <laughs> um, and that's in order. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Leslie has really been doing the rounds because she also gave an interview to The Wrap. Um, and again, it's a much longer interview than the part I'll read out here um, because, yeah, we're just trying to keep it concise in the interest of time. Um, but yeah, go and read the whole interview, please. Um, but yeah, for the our purposes, what I wanted to bring up here was Leslie discussing her relationship with the Phantom Menace and how that kind of informs what's going on with the Acolyte. So yeah, could you read out what I've highlighted, please, Kirsty? And I know there were varying reactions to the Phantom Menace, and certainly there were a lot of people that had grown up with the original trilogy who were disappointed by it. But I actually was very intrigued by why George Lucas had started us at that particular point. I kind of wondered, but what happened to lead up to this? That's kind of where my Star Wars fan brain went. It was like, how did we get here? And why are the Jedi like this? When they're in power, why are they acting this way? And how is it that they're not having the reaction that you think they would to Anakin's presence? And what Qui-Gon Jinn is saying about how passionately he feels about training him and bringing him into the fold. It's like, even the discovery of Darth Maul is kind of met with this like, hmm, interesting kind of feeling. So I just think for me, my brain has always buzzed around that area and wondered what's going on here, or what has been going on here. Oh, I love this so much. It makes me it's excited. so good. Yes. <laughs> I'm so excited to read this. Like her really engaging with what's going on in The Phantom Menace and not, yeah, acknowledging that, yes, there were people who tended to be older fans who were kind of disappointed by it. But meeting this story on its own terms and kind of putting it into the context of where the Jedi would be at this point, why are they acting this way? Because were they really the Jedi that people had been envisioning? probably not and why was that like what had got them to this stage and obviously with the high republic series coming out now we're getting kind of a preview to that but as i understand it acolyte is kind of kind of be like right at the end of the high republic era so like much more close to phantom menace era yes you think that is my understanding yeah and i think we have had like sources allude to as much as well so yeah i think that seems pretty like confident that that's going to be the case and i feel like i'm gonna have to dance around it a bit because i don't want to explicitly hint at anything that happens in the rising storm but let me just say that reading the rising storm it puts these sorts of comments in a different perspective for me you know like it gives Mm. more context to them um and yeah i'm gonna shut up about that now because i don't want to spoil anything but yeah i i just think it's such a great topic to explore you know because the jedi they're not what you would want your shining heroes to be in the phantom menace you know they're i don't know just a bit stuffy and boring and staid and they're just not having complacent yeah they're complacent that they seem like almost emotionless you know like blank slates you know they're like serene to the point of being like completely maddening in my opinion (laughs) um and yeah like there's got to be reasons for that you know so they don't act like normal humans by any stretch of the imagination 
And I think that's a really, really cool take, you know, to ask those questions about how did this happen, you know? Um, and I know there has been there have been rumors that Acolyte is gonna focus more on Darksiders as well. So like and I feel a bit mixed about whether I'd literally want to see like young Palpatine as a character in the show. Like it would all depend on execution, you know, there's ways of doing that that would not make me hate it. But I feel like it's very dangerous territory if they did do that. And at, le- at the very least, it seems like Palpatine would not be the the protagonist of this show. Oh, Because no. that would kill it I for me. I would so. <laughs> be like, no. <laughs> Maybe we'll get that Matt Smith performance after all. <laughs> oh, my God. I'd be like, not today, Satan. Not today. <laughs> well, he's busy with the Game of Thrones. Yeah, sequel, exactly. Isn't he? But... Yeah, yeah. He's really missed the boat, unfortunately, to play young Palpatine. But this this quote, like, yeah, we're we're really pleased with it because it it felt like almost a gift to read this from a future creator of Star Wars just after we'd done that series about the prequels and the kind of fandom reaction to it in a contemporary sense. So to get this from a creator, like, talking about how she felt as that movie was coming out and the questions that she had surrounding that story, it was like, it just felt really good to read it. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. (laughs) I hadn't really um, thought about that consciously, but you're right. Because, you know, we were saying, like, when we watched those movies, and even when we watch them now, um, as you kind of said, like, the the Jedi just seem so detached from the dangers that are swirling around them during this entire time. They're so unaware of, like, the real dangers there. Even though they're, like... They, like, say that they're concerned, but... (laughs) They don't act (laughs) like it. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So you just got to wonder, like, what got them into that state, and... Of course, like, we we were even reading out during that series, like, the differences in the fan readings, and I guess this kind of echoes what Leslie was saying about it being so into, open to interpretation, but there were a lot of fans who thought the Jedi were acting the way that they should, and they were nothing to do with the fall of the Republic and Anakin's personal fall. It was all his fault, um, but we, we think it's it's definitely a bit more complicated than that. Yeah. Exactly. I really hope that Acolyte is going to be one of those sorts of shows that explores the grey area a lot. Because, yeah, that's the area of Star Wars that's definitely most interesting to me. And just just stepping back and thinking of like, wow, we're getting a prequel to the prequels. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like the Phantom Menace is now like such an embedded part of like the the story of Star Wars, whether you like it or not, you know, um, that it's going to have its own lead up to it and obviously there are there are books and things like we've read master and apprentice and we really enjoyed that and you've got the high republic series but we're now going to have a show that's obviously going to reach a lot a, a wider audience for sure yeah and um yeah it sounds like it's going to be a blast yeah definitely so it's going to be the furthest back in time any stars tv show has gone right yeah i guess yeah probably by yeah. quite a margin because Obviously, there's everything else seems to be around the original trilogy era at the moment, right? Yeah, exactly. So I guess the next closest would be the Clone Wars TV show because, yeah, Clone Wars. <laughs> um, whereas, yeah, this I think it's meant to take place at least a good few decades, you know, before the Phantom Menace. So there is quite a gap there. So yeah, it'll be super interesting. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, and yeah, just quickly to round up the acolyte coverage we have. Um, there's also some news on the filming of Acolyte. So this is from Discussing Film. I'll just read it out quickly. 
So Lucasfilm is aiming to begin production on the Acolyte this upcoming February, that's 2022, the year of the future, in London. The series will likely use the volume that has already been set up in Pinewood Studios in London, following the successful use of the technology in LA for the first two seasons of The Mandalorian, as well as The Book of Boba Fett. Casting has already begun for the Acolyte, with Lucasfilm looking to cast a young woman of colour in the lead role. The Acolyte has been described as a female-driven action mystery thriller with martial arts elements that will take us into a galaxy of shadowy secrets and emerging dark side powers in the final days of the High Republic era. And doesn't that just sound awesome? <laughs> sounds so good. It really does. <laughs> like, in a way, it's kind of annoying because it sounds so interesting to me that everything else kind of, like, pales by comparison. <laughs> You know, it's like, I'm sure I'll still enjoy, like, Andor and, you know, especially the Obi-Wan show and Book of Boba Fett and stuff. They'll all be fun, at least. But, I don't know, I feel like this is going to be the most compelling of the bunch. And, yeah, I I don't know, it just has all the elements that it needs to predispose me to like it, basically. I'm almost glad that not everything sounds like it's completely up my personal alley, you know? Because, like, getting that invested in everything, it's a bit of a time suck. Yeah. You know? That's true, yeah. Yeah, dip my toes in and enjoy it as it's going on, but not get completely emotionally invested. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. It's good to um have a mix of things because shockingly we do have lives outside of Star Wars as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but do we? Do we really? <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, okay, cool. Um, so yeah, that's the acolyte stuff wrapped up now. So we'll move on to the coverage of Star Wars Visions. So they had a panel at Anime Expo where they basically released the first information about the show and they released a lot so we won't be able to go through like every single short in detail because yeah we'd be here a long time and then we wouldn't be able to get to our desperately needed Ewok coverage that I know everyone is so excited for. Um, But yeah we'll do our best to just provide a quick overview. Could you read the introduction to Star Wars Visions as a concept Kirsty and like when it's coming out and stuff I've highlighted the relevant section. We won't have to wait long for the series. Star Wars Visions will arrive September 22nd on Disney+. Star Wars Visions storytelling didn't have to fit in the timeline. In developing the series, Lucasfilm made the decision to let creators tell the stories they wanted to tell, whether they were featured established or original characters, without a need to tie into the larger chronology. We really wanted to give these creators a wider creative berth to explore all the imaginative potential of the Star Wars galaxy through the unique lens of anime, James Well said. We realised we wanted these to be as authentic as possible to the studios and creators who were making them, made through their unique process, in a medium they're such experts at. So the idea was, this is their version riffing off all the elements of the Star Wars galaxy that inspired them, hopefully to make a really incredible anthology series unlike anything we've seen before in the Star Wars galaxy. Yeah, and I really love that. I think it's so good that they gave these creators maximum freedom. There weren't all these like restrictions and like boundaries that were put up for them in terms of, oh, you need to fit in this part of the timeline on this planet and use these aliens and stuff. You know, it seems like they really let these anime studios go completely wild and just come up with their own designs and concepts. And I love that because... I feel like Star Wars is often like borrowing, you know, from Japanese cultural heritage, but we haven't really had Japanese creators actually tell Star Wars before this point, I think. And it's going to be really interesting to see a version of Star Wars that's so culturally specific. And yeah, I just love the look of these shorts and I think they look really cool. 
Yeah, it looks amazing. We were both saying that it kind of reminded us of the Animatrix, if people have seen that. Yeah. It probably was, like, one of the things that Lucasfilm were kind of looking at and saying, can we kind of have our spin on something like this? Yeah, no, definitely. It's the Animatrix is so, so cool. And if you have even a passing interest in the Matrix, so this show is, like, turning into, like, an advert to get people to watch <laughs> the Matrix. But it's good, I promise. Go and watch it. Um but yeah, like if you even have a passing interest in the Matrix and the world of the Matrix, the Animatrix is amazing precisely because it just explores all the different angles of that world in really cool and interesting ways. And it's like angles that the mainline Matrix films would never have time for, you know, because there just wouldn't be a place for those little human stories. But they all incorporate aspects of the mythology and they just use it to tell these really fascinating narratives and yeah that seems to be very much what they're doing with visions and i think that's awesome um so yeah what i've done for the discussion kirsty is i've basically selected a few of the shorts that struck me as the most cool or interesting for whatever reason and i just included the little bits of information about them i could find from the panel so yeah the first one i have is the jewel um and that apparently is a tale ultimately about someone who must choose selflessness a cool star wars theme it will be told in black and white with splashes of color for certain elements like lightsabers and i think with this one i was especially drawn to the concept art it has easily mm-hmm. some of the most cool looking and exciting concept art for any of these shorts and they all look great but i feel like it's just a really detailed art style that it just looks incredible so yeah what do you think about that art style Kirsty? it's stunning like just reimagining the stormtroopers in this way you know that's a visual with stormtroopers that you just kind of take for granted in star wars at this point you know it's just like background often they use as cannon fodder obviously it's different with the sequel trilogy slightly because of finn's story but i don't know just to kind of reimagine them that way is it's really interesting yeah that looks really cool um yeah then another one that stood out to me was tatooine rhapsody um and yeah could you read out the description of tatooine rhapsody kirsty put down your blasters and grab a guitar for studio colorado's tatooine rhapsody told for a more chibi art style tatooine rhapsody is heading into uncharted star wars waters it's a star wars rock opera said rhymes of the story about a band with a dream to make it big We took a chance and they just blew us away with the style and the characters and the tone and really the heart of what is best in Star Wars about found family and the dream. It's also one of the few shorts to feature classic characters as our heroic band will run into Boba Fett and Jabba the Hutt. I really hope it is an actual (laughs) rock opera though. You know, I want this Mm. to be like full on songs from like beginning (laughs) to end. Um, And yeah, like in the rock format. I'd like to see like Jabba the Hutt perform a rock number, please. (laughs) awesome (laughs) yeah and i want to hear his like vocal chops you know like he's clearly a guy who appreciates like uh, performances and singing and stuff so yeah maybe he has vocal talents we don't know about um but yeah again i just love this because it just shows how wild they're going with the concepts of this thing you know like a star wars rock opera if you told me i don't know two three years ago people were gonna get a star wars rock opera i wouldn't have believed you and apparently it's awesome it has it's kind of reminding me of the cre- creativity you see in fan works a lot, you know, yeah. where the world is your oyster and you're not confined by what canon is or what Star Wars is. You know, they're just having fun with these characters and this setting. Yeah, maybe one day we'll get a Star Wars Visions colon Raylo. 
<laughs> Maybe. I did see some people like, oh, nothing seems to be like sequel trilogy related. Oh. To be fair, though, I feel like almost none of these shorts actually engage with any of the main characters or anything from the films. It's very much just about taking the world. And I know there are a few references to like original trilogy characters in the descriptions and inspirations, but... I think that's all people meant, you know, like the the kind of visual influences of, and like, you know, the, the sibling relationship sure. of Luke and Leia, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, no, that, and that does make sense. Like, um, and yeah, I really hope that it's still to come. So I guess for a lot of these people, you know, they're looking back to the stars of their childhood and because the people working at these animation studios are going to be like old, a bit older for the most part, you know, like 30s, 40s. They, were, they didn't grow up with the sequels, you know, so that's not like the cornerstone of Star Wars for them. Hopefully in another 10, 20 years, you will find people referencing like Rey and Kylo and Finn and Poe, etc, etc, in their vision of Star Wars. But yeah, we're not there yet, sadly. I was also just thinking that at this, when they started this project, you know, it would have been a long time ago, really, like the sequel trilogy wouldn't have been over at that point. Yeah. It, it just might have been safer to kind of focus on other aspects of star wars yeah no that's very true cool and then the next short i wanted to talk about is the twins so i'll read the bit about this one triggers the twins and the elder will offer new spins on hallmark star wars motifs the twins subverts the idea of luke and leia and imagines a brand new set of twins born into the dark side and how far the brother will go to save his sister leech said this is even represented visually with a co-joined Star Destroyer, which is just like a wacky concept that I kind of love. Um, and yeah, I'm really intrigued by that. I, I feel like this is the sort of concept I kind of love to just see like a movie about it, you know, because naturally a short film won't be able to go into like a great deal of depth, you know, about how did children come to be born on the dark side, you know? I hate to say it, but like at the moment, most of the dark siders we've seen, they definitely don't have like families. <laughs> You know, and I know that's the whole Palpatine thing, and there's that whole can of worms, you know. So I'm acutely aware of that. But they even seem to explain that away by bloody cloning, you know, at the end of the day. Whereas this seems to be like, wow, an actual Darksider had like an actual pair of twins, hopefully without cloning involved. <laughs> I want to know that story, you know. Yeah, it's almost kind of presenting the dark side as like a culture that someone would be born into. Yeah. No, that's really As true. As opposed to in in the trilogies, it's almost like, you know, it's a choice that people make. But if you're born into it, that's that's different, isn't it? Yeah, so it's like a career like path. conceptualise it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think this one looks really cool. Um, and yeah, that shining blonde hair. Wow. It's very striking, you know, the blonde hair with the like dark side outfit. I love the yeah. like, helmet and just the whole design. Is that a bit like the seventh sister? Like I'm not. I... It does remind me of the Inquisitors, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I guess that's the like reference point for it. It's very cool looking. Um, cool. Then the next one I wanted to bring up is called the Village Bride. Um, cool. Could, could you read out the description for that one, please, Kirsty? The Village Bride by Kinema Citrus follows a fallen Jedi, but not in a way you'd expect. The guardian of peace and justice observes a local tradition in a far-off village through the eyes of a bride on the eve of her wedding day and an unexpected choice she must make to save her people. It's poetic, meditative, and romantically bittersweet, Shirasaki said. The shore also approaches the Force in a really unique and surprising way, too. Oh my god, that, that sounds so good! It does! That fallen Jedi better fall in love with that bride. 
Uh, sounds like something sad's gonna happen. It <laughs> yeah, it sounds like whatever happens, it doesn't end particularly well. But it just sounds awesome. I think of all of them, this is the one that seems most appealing to me. And they all sound really cool and interesting, you know. But yeah, there's just something about this that sounds awesome. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of romantic angst in Star Wars. So if they can pull that off and and, and really go for it, that'd be stunning. Exactly. I was like a dog, like sniffing, like an enticing smell. You know, when they mentioned the <laughs> R word in the little promo video they put out for Visions, so I was like, oh my god, romance! Really, you're going there? I love it. <laughs> and of course, romance can mean lots of things. Sure. But yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Hopefully, it means the juicy kind in this context. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, right. And then the final one I've highlighted specifically is called the Ninth Jedi. Um, and could you read out the description of the Ninth Jedi, Kirsty? It's an absolutely epic story, according to Rhymes, but it actually began as two separate shorts. One was to be set in a time when Jedi have fallen into legend and need to come back as darkness threatens the galaxy, with the daughter of a lightsaber smith seeking out the Jedi and delivering their weapons. The other story was to be told from the point of view of eight warriors coming together, learning if they are indeed Force-sensitive and can trust each other. Ultimately, the decision was made to combine the stories in order to achieve something on a grander scale. We brought these two tales together to create something really epic and special, Rhyme said. They had us at Lightsaber Smith, added Lopez. That does sound really interesting, Someone following someone who makes lightsabers. Yeah. No, so it's really cool. I'm very curious to see how they combine those two stories as well. So on the surface, they seem like very different tales, you know, with very different kinds of focus. Um, but yeah, like I think there's lots of potential for that to be a really cool combo. And yeah, the whole idea of a lightsaber smith is super fascinating. I, I can, although I must say, I can already hear certain like anal retentive fans being like, um, they make their own. Yeah, exactly. When actually <laughs> the Jedi Padawans have to make their own lightsabers, they don't need a lightsaber smith. And it's like, who cares? In in the eras that we have seen, yes, you know, like it could have could have evolved. Exactly, and. I kind of would just love for, say, these stories, you know, like the whole canon thing. And ultimately, it doesn't matter, you know, what matters is that they're good stories and they all seem to be shaping up to be that way, which is great. But I kind of would like them to be canon, but just like in a really, really distant period, you know, in the past of the galaxy. Because there's thousands and thousands of years, you know, that the Jedi have been around for. So there's nothing to say that all these practices and these traditions that seem unfamiliar, you know, compared to modern canon, that they want, there's nothing to say they weren't a thing thousands of years ago, you know, so mm-hmm. I think they could explain it that way, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping even, I mean, I don't want to get into the canon and not canon debate, but in terms of like just casting the net really wide and just thinking outside the box, I hope that this, you know, if, if they have done amazing work here, which it sounds like they have, that this then inspires future Star Wars projects to to go a bit further and break new ground. Yeah. No, absolutely. Because yeah, I think anything they can do to like broaden it out and like bring in like new voices, new influences, I think that's always gonna be a good thing. So I, I do think Filoni's obviously very talented, you know, and he's done a lot for Star Wars, but I don't want to see Star Wars just become the Dave Filoni show, you know, and I think Luke's film understand that, you know, otherwise they would just be sticking to the Filoni side of things, you know, of the more Mando-centric world and all the spin-offs from that. 
So yeah, I'm glad they're doing these like more cool eclectic projects a bit on the side at the moment, but they are doing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, so it's really good, and yeah, I'm very excited for Visions. And honestly, I can't believe how soon it's going to be, really, because we're in July and it's coming in September. So it really will be here before we know it. Yeah, it's really nice to have things to look forward to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's been a bit of a miserable year and a half. So yeah, it's nice to have these little bright spots. Um, cool. And then just one final piece of news I wanted to read very, very quickly um, is that Boris Kitt, who's a bit of an in- industry insider, as they say, um, he's reported on the writer of Rogue Squadron. So he said it's going to be Matthew Robinson, and he was the screenwriter of Love and Monsters and The Invention of Lion. And I don't know if you've seen either of those things, Kirsty, um, but I wanted to bring this up very briefly because I have seen Love and Monsters. And I just wanted to report that Love and Monsters is quite good. It's not great, but it's good. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't say this fills me with excitement by any means, basically, you know, just with reference to Love and Monsters. You know, he might have done incredible work for something else, but it doesn't fill me with dread either. You know, it's not like a Colin Trevorrow situation or anything. So yeah, it's been a while since we heard anything about Patty's movie, you know, so I guess it's good that they are reporting a writer because it's clearly proceeding. Hmm. I haven't seen Love and Monsters or The Invention of Lying, actually. That's the one with um, Jessica Henwick in it, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And she is good yeah. in it. I do want to. I will watch it. And probably even more so now that I've heard about this. But yeah, right now I have no opinion on Matthew Robinson because I don't know his work. Yeah. No, and that's completely fair. Um, because, yeah, we should refrain from giving opinions on things we know nothing about. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded really like headmistressy. I just realised how that sounded. No. <laughs> so I was like, I wish I refrain from giving I opinions. I mean, that's what the internet is for. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, yep, so that's the news done. Let's move into the Bad Batch. So we've had two episodes since we last recorded. Shocking. So I know it's exactly the same as the last time. Um, and those episodes are Bounty Lost in Common Ground. Um, and yeah, I enjoyed both of these. I guess the big thing from Bounty Lost was they kind of reveal why these bounty hunters are searching for Omega in the first place. And it's basically because she's like the same as Boba Fett. Like she's a perfect copy of Django Fett's DNA. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Um, which... It kind of surprised me that that was the reveal because I kind of thought that was the prevailing thing that we were supposed to think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not like mad about it or anything. Sure. It was just like, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I really liked the episode in general, but it, I just, I don't quite understand why these reveals happen when it's like, that's what everyone thought. Yeah. No, I also found that really funny. It's like, was that even meant to be a question? I thought that was just a known fact. <laughs> that's a bit weird. Because, um, yeah, like, obviously there's been, like, wacky theories. Like, oh, what if she's a Palpatine clone? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, do, you know, the Palpatine thing, I actually do not blame people for theorizing no, no. that. Yeah. Because Amiga is a lot paler than Child Boba from the Clone Wars. Yeah. So this is the weird thing. Like, we were obviously, from the the premiere episode and you know, there was discussion about it beyond us that was in the fandom and the media picked it up as well that there was an issue with like the skin tone of a lot of the clones including Amiga and at that point the benefit of the doubt was given with the whole Amiga thing because it was like well it hadn't been confirmed that she was meant to be a clone just like them maybe she's a clone of someone else 
and she's supposed to be white, but she's not. So that's kind of awkward. Yeah, it, it makes it even worse, doesn't it? It's a bit bad. Um, mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I do think that's a real misstep, I think, for the show, unfortunately. It's the sort of thing you'd really think there were more scrupulous checks on that sort of thing you know like you're literally there saying she's a genetic copy and she's like several shades lighter than the person she's meant to be a perfect copy of yeah it just doesn't make sense yeah but i really did enjoy this episode i loved that fennec was back i really i was glad to be proven wrong about my concerns there the fact that bane had been introduced and maybe we wouldn't see her again but i loved their interactions um very dramatic yeah um i I, I he was one of my favorites in the Clone Wars, but I also I just love Cad Bane's droid. I just think he's such a funny sidekick. Yes. so I was happy to have more of him. Yeah, I much preferred Cad Bane's droid. Cad Bane, I must say. I think that's it's not a totally uncommon opinion. Cool. So yeah, no, he's just very entertaining and funny, and I loved like how trusting like the droid was ultimately, you know, in letting Omega out. So come on, obviously she's gonna double cross you, but yeah, it's kind of endearing. You know, I felt sorry for the droid. Yeah, but yeah, no, it, it was a really good episode. I definitely think it's one of the strongest of the season so far. Um, and yeah, it was great to see Fennec back. I really liked the action. It was really well done. All the fight scenes with um, Fennec and Cad Bane. Um, and I also really liked that it was one of the people of Camino who <laughs> sent Fennec to protect Omega. Yeah. Yeah. This really interesting like adding nuance there that i cannot remember being in the clone wars in the same way and i guess it's kind of come about because of their increasing desperation as to like their redundancy with the new setting of the empire but like there are now these like fractures in the kaminoans relationships with each other yeah really interesting yeah no definitely so i feel like they're normally just portrayed as like very functional figures aren't they they're not really shown to have like emotions or like attachments to anyone i really loved that nala say had this like protective relationship with amiga like maybe caesar as a daughter i just think that's that's really compelling and i hope we get more there yeah no i really like that too and it was nice because it's kind of underplayed you know, in the actual series itself, because you do see Omega working for Nala, say, at the start of the series. So you realise that they're obviously spending a lot of time together. Um, but yeah, they kind of keep it a little bit on the down low, that there's this like affection and protectiveness there. And I think that's quite a good choice because it makes it a bit of a twist, you know, and you find out that Nala, say, sent Fennec to protect Omega. Mm. Yeah, like it didn't spell it out for you, which I feel like it would have been very easy for them to spell it out. So, yeah, it's a good choice. Do you think that they're after Boba Fett in a similar way? Or is it too difficult to find him now because he could be anywhere? Like, in terms of Amiga being valuable because she's Django's unaltered clone, like, would they also put a bounty out on Boba Fett the bounty hunter? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, basically, I don't know if they're even aware that Boba's still alive. And yet, if they are, they might just think Boba's too difficult to trace at this point and Omega's a safer bet. Hmm. I'm also, this is just making me more and more interested in what's going to go on with the Book of Boba Fett because Fennec now has this recurring relationship with Amiga. She's encountered her multiple times. She like has this sense of protecting her and it might just be because it's a job for her. But I do believe there's going to be some level of personal investment there. Um, like, would Amiga show up or would they like reference her? Would Boba consider her a sister? 
like what's their relationship going to be like at that point yeah so i really like omega i think she's a great character and i would love to see her like grown up in live action i think that could be super cool um but yeah i guess i'm just not sure if they'd go there you know but then again like the mandalorian season two had very very direct connections to the animated shows so they clearly have no qualms about like bringing in animated characters into the live action shows so yeah i think it could very easily happen and if it does happen Mm -hmm. it would be like really cool setup you know in terms of the place of the Bad Batch relative to the rest of the storytelling they're doing at the moment. So I must admit, when the Bad Batch was first announced, it just felt kind of like random. It was like, why are you doing this now? <laughs> you know, it was like, why? Um, but yeah, if it does tie a bit more closely into Book of Boba, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. I just can't believe how much Boba Fett related stuff we're getting at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I sure it's the dream for many fans. So Oh I'm yeah, it's just not what I saw coming, you know. I know there were long rumors of like a Boba Fett movie. Um, but not even just Boba Fett himself, but like all the Mando stuff, like obviously the entire history of the Mandalorians as a concept is wrapped up in Boba Fett's armor from the original trilogy. So so much has spun out from those few minutes of screen time it's yeah. kind of nuts yeah this isn't it right that the mandalorians they basically exist as a culture like just because boba fett was so popular they were like well what if we have a whole race of boba fett well they must because yeah it all stems from that armor yeah and 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 then he's tied up in you know this throwaway comment about the clone wars that obi-wan gives it's just it's wild yeah <laughs> Oh god, stalls making whole spin-offs about single lines of dialogue. It's quite impressive. Um and yeah, I also enjoyed the most recent episode, which was Common Ground. Um where yeah, basically the bad batch go and rescue a senator, essentially. That's the plot in a nutshell. Um I found it less it felt less vital, I guess, than Bounty Lost. Um and I also didn't like that Omega was separated from the main crew, you know, and obviously they make a point of that. It doesn't happen arbitrarily. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just prefer the episodes when they're all together, you know, for the most part. Um, or at least okay. when they are separated, I like it when Omega is given like an equal focus, which was the case in Bounty Lost, because Omega's on her own for most of that episode. But, you know, she is doing a lot and she's like saving herself and like being very resourceful and stuff. Whereas in Common Ground, she's like a bit more on the back burner, you know? Um, but yeah, I'm rambling. Yeah, but she. she saves them from all that debt and she kind of forges this like understanding with Sid who then like respects her as someone who can win this game and develop strategy and and Hunter has that moment of respect with her at the end as well I know she doesn't have as much screen time so I I guess that's what you're getting at Um, but I I didn't feel too badly about that because there was such a focus on her in Bounty Lost yeah no that's true Um, yeah but I I get it like she's a great character so you want to see her yeah I I did really like Common Ground because it just it gave me and I, I, this sounds silly because bad batch is in kind of like that era kind of straddling between the prequels and the originals but just kind of the aesthetic of like that um that planet and the senator and everything um it just it felt very prequels to me which i like yeah i did like it so it was a very different vibe from pretty much anything yeah. else we've seen in the show so far so yeah, the look of the planet and the senator was really cool. I did also like that the Bad Batch had to kind of get over themselves about helping a separatist. Yeah, it was really funny. I was like, have you guys not put together yet that this whole conflict was made up? 
<laughs> like the separatists are not your enemies. Yeah, <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> Maybe gonna take a while for them to get there. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, <clears throat> I, I feel like there's lots of like parallels to real life political like rivalries in that case. You know, people just can't get past these like surface affiliations sometimes yeah. and but see each other as humans. It, yeah, so... they did. They did. Yeah. 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 So it was a happier outcome in the Bad Batch than it often is in real life. And I really enjoyed GS8, the droid. Oh yes, no, the GS8 was great. Yeah, no, I really liked that, especially the fact that she is so um, like fundamental in like saving her employer, basically. She's like the real hero, isn't she, of the episode? Yeah. Yeah, I liked that. She just reminded me of L3. I was like, oh, I miss L3. <laughs> yeah, I, I would actually like like a re a revived droid show at some point you know where we see like the droid gotra and just like droids like fighting for their rights you know <laughs> that could be have you been watching this is i'm getting off topic but have you been watching that droid cartoon that they put on disney plus oh the like vintage one from the 80s yeah Not, yeah i would like to I'm actually enjoying it. Oh, really? Oh, good. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, I, f- I thought I might because I just, I love R2 and 3PO. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's it's really fun. Nice. Are you prioritizing that over Ewoks? <laughs> well, I have. Yeah. I haven't watched the Ewoks one okay. yet. Okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Traitor. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm, <laughs> I'm invested more in R2 and 3PO. No, no, no. 3PO. It's totally fair. It's totally fair. Also, it has a killer theme song. Okay. Yeah, well, at the yeah. very least, I'll try and check out the theme song straight after this episode. So I'm curious now. <laughs> um, okay, great. Anything else on Bad Batch before we move on to Ewoks? I don't think so, but I feel like we're coming to the end of the first season already. What, we've got like six episodes left? Yeah, we're definitely past the midway point. The pacing has surprised me because like when they got separated from Amiga, I thought that might be like a multi-episode arc, but then they were back with her next next episode. Yeah, I'll <laughs> so. tell you what reminded me of, it reminded me of Mandalorian um, because it, I think yeah. it's a bit like that of Baby Yoda being kidnapped, um, like in terms of Baby Yoda's kidnapped, but then they get Baby Yoda back in the next episode, <laughs> um, yeah. which is fine. And I have also noticed Star Wars, the fact that you're repeating this idea of there being a child being looked after by like manly men <laughs> but and yeah to be fair bad batch and mandalorian they are very different shows you know so i think it's a bit reductive for me to say that they are like the same plot but yeah i don't know i guess just more shows that aren't just about a child being protected you know like i don't know i just like diversity no i understand i think the big difference is that the Bad Batch are like a brotherhood. So, and you've obviously got more of the lone wolf aspect with Mando, but I totally get the the similarities. Yeah, yeah. And I hate to say this, and it might cause outrage in some quarters, but I much prefer Omega to Baby Yoda. I, yeah, I, me too. Nice. Baby Yoda's cute, but Omega has a personality. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> and an arc. The thing is, Baby Yoda's personality is that it's cute, right? <laughs> There's just nothing else going on, really. He's yeah. cute and he has I don't know how many years he'd have to get into the future to actually develop like a sense of self and express himself. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, but yeah, on the subject of cuteness and cute characters, that can only mean one thing. That it's Ewok time. So we're here for part two of our Ewok special series. And this time we're going to be discussing the battle for Endor. I hope everyone is as excited as we are. Um, so yep, I will briefly run through the backstory to this film and then we'll just go into discussing our thoughts. 
Um, so yeah, the first TV movie, as we mentioned at the tail end of our discussion last time, was very successful. I believe it was the highest rated original TV movie of the year. Um, so naturally, they were going to do a sequel. He hired Jim and Ken Wee, and you said those guys were horror film like people, right, Kirsty? Mostly. Yeah, that I I just got that from Wikipedia. I didn't actually check out the movies that they've done, but that <laughs> sure. seemed to be what they were known for. Yeah, and I think that shows. We'll talk about that in a minute, but yeah, I think you can tell that they have a markedly different approach to Star Wars. Um, and apparently, and I find this absolutely hilarious, that they were hired by George Lucas to make Battle for Endor after they told him that Caravan of Courage had been, and I quote, flawed and disappointing. <laughs> nothing like being honest yeah i know right like and i appreciate that and clearly george did too otherwise he wouldn't have hired them you know because that takes real guts you know to go up to a guy and obviously i know george didn't direct caravan of courage but he obviously had a big hand in it um and say yeah you know that tv movie you made about the ewoks it was pretty bad we could probably do and it, it might not <laughs> They might not have been all they said. They might have like made suggestions for something else in future. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. And I was actually really fascinated to find the source of this information. You know, I was like, where did this come from? And it's actually surprisingly interesting because the Wikipedia sources, they basically take you to this like account of the release of the Ewok DVDs or something and there was like a fan meetup in person like to mark this event you know because Star Wars fans being Star Wars fans they celebrate everything um, and this guy turned up with like an Ewok movie themed t-shirt and he revealed himself to be either Jim or Ken I can't remember which one Ooh, and cool. yeah just spilled all this like juicy gossip about the Ewok movies basically <laughs> to these random fans and yeah, that's apparently the source of that information about them just being super honest with George about their feelings on Caravan of Courage. So, yeah, I thought that was a cool story. <laughs> <laughs> so, essentially, um, when the Wheat Brothers first proposed a story to George Lucas, their story involved the entire Tawani family. But George, me um, <laughs> and George, had viewed Heidi with little Amanda prior to the making of Battle Friend or and little Amanda apparently really liked Heidi and really liked Sindel from Caravan of Courage okay so that was the two keys and so George's idea was that he basically wanted a Heidi movie where little Sindel was now an orphan <laughs> <laughs> and so that meant bye bye to Wani family <laughs> oh my god <laughs> um and yeah, we'll go into this when we talk about the movie more. So we won't like discuss that choice in great depth right now. But wow, George, wow, <laughs> it's, it's dark. Yeah, it's it's very dark. It's certainly a choice. I feel like I should be saying darker middle chapter, but of course it's not an Ewok trilogy. It's a duology. So. Yeah. I, I would I would totally have been down for a trilogy. Like it was like the third one where Sindel's like a teenager and she finally comes back to Endor and she promised and hijinks happen. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's another discussion for another time. Um, yep. And then could you read out the final little tidbit I have? The film was shot under complete secrecy. During production, Lucas would visit the set three times per week, often to look at art and costume designs. He would voice his opinion of the designs using a set of rubber stamps made for him by Johnston that read, Great, CBB could be better, 
and 86, respectively. According to Ken Wheat, Lucas's involvement was mainly in pre-production and editing. He'd given almost no notes on the script at all, but after our first cut, he came up with an assortment of new scenes and shots for us to film and cut in. Apparently that's the way he likes to work, and although we hadn't been tipped off in advance, producer Tom Smith had scheduled and budgeted this George factor from the beginning. <laughs> like, I love George, but it sounds like he's not the best communicator in these sorts of things. <laughs> I mean, I get his impulse because it's easier to, like, give feedback on something that's already been made and, like, say, actually, I think we should do it this way sure. rather than, like, saying that from the start. But yeah, that probably was a little bit frustrating for them. Yeah, I'm also quite interested by that rubber stamp system because I'm certain I read about George using a very similar system on the prequels, like with yeah. the art department and the stamps. I think there's, isn't there, I think we see him using stamps in the beginning. Yes. Do, do we? Yeah, I feel like it, we it do. seems familiar. Yeah, I feel like they actually make quite a thing about that. You know, there's like a little segment explaining the stamps and everyone like making jokes about them. Um, see, I would love if this was like the genesis of the stamp system, you know, it was invented for the Ewok movies. <laughs> then it carried over to the prequels. Cause... It's very efficient. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's really the main meat of stuff for the background. There was other information I could find, you know, about Warwick doing his own stunts and like the Wheat Brothers citing things like Swiss Family Robinson, which we obviously mentioned last time as an influence on the film um but yeah we could just go on and on listing pieces of trivia but i felt like that probably wasn't the best use of our time so yeah i think it's probably a good opportunity to go into the story um so yeah kirsty what's your first impressions of the story of battle for endor especially compared to caravan of courage what do you think about it it's quite shocking yes (laughs) I remember watching it for the first time and I'd I'd heard whispers of it being like darker but I didn't know what people meant by that specifically and those first 10-15 minutes it's like oh my god I did not I did not think that was going to happen yeah you know it's basically Sindel's entire family are killed and then suddenly there's this entirely new threat of these marauders and Terak like there's just this like oh there were these other threats on Endor this whole time and they weren't remotely hit. It's like they just live on this incredibly dangerous planet where there are all of these different villains just <laughs> out there. <laughs> you know, you've got the Gorax, who obviously doesn't feature at all in this one. And like, it's just not, I don't know. It's just funny because it like gives you a completely different perception of Endor, the, the movies do, the, you know, the yeah skywalker saga exactly yeah it's just full of dangers basically in this film (laughs) and there's just this like overall sense that endor's this place where people come to and then can't leave (laughs) it almost felt like lost or something or it's like people just stuck here for god knows how long desperately trying to leave and can't and dying in the process of trying and yeah it's just like oh wow okay the ewoks are the only people who actually want to be there (laughs) Yeah, and it's funny, it's just like some sort of like idyllic paradise for the Ewoks, you know, and it all looks very cute and lovely, like in terms of their experience of the planet. But yeah, for everyone else, it's just this hellhole. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, on that note, like some of the world building just doesn't make sense, does it? Because the Marauders, the impression you get is that they crash landed there, you know, some point in the past. And it must have been like within the lifetimes of all these people yet they have this like massive fortified castle you know exactly so did that belong to someone else <laughs> before them 
did they build it? Surely it wasn't the Ewoks. It's not Ewok size. Someone. <laughs> so yeah, they have this home, but like I don't know. You get, but then did they crash land there? Because there's not that. There's this whole thing. We're getting like really away from like the core of the story, sure. but like there's just this strange sense that like they don't want to be there. But also, they've got this preoccupation with the power, <laughs> which is the oscillator from the Tawani ship, right? Yes. Uh, but they don't know how it works. So, like, are they familiar with the concept of space travel? Yeah, it seems Very like strange. no one is basically, apart from Noah. Like, Noah is like the one exception. But the witch must be as well, because she's not from Endor. Yeah, so what's she doing? Her whole deal with her and Terak. Again, we're like bringing in all of these different things at once, but what we're saying is the story is a little confusing and maybe it's just best not to think about it too much. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I think when you reduce it down to its bare bones and you stop thinking about the logic of things, it's a very simple story. Little Sindel is orphaned. Little Sindel and Wicket are captured by the Marauders, but they manage to escape and they come across a grumpy old man played by Wilford Brimley. Who also crash landed. Who also crash landed. Everyone crash landed on this planet, apparently. Um, (laughs) What is it with Endor and people crash landing? It's crazy. Um, Yeah, so they come into contact with this old man. They gradually win him over, apparently just because they're cute, basically. Because who can resist, like, a cute little kid (laughs) and Ewok? Yeah, it's very relatable, to be honest. Um, Then Sindel gets captured by the Marauders again, because of course she does. And then they have to go and mount a rescue to free Sindel and free the Ewoks and defeat Tarak. That is the plot. Like, so when you describe it in those terms, it is very simple. You know, like it's easy to follow. It's easily digestible for a child audience, which is obviously what they're going for with these movies. I think it's just, you know, when you watch these things as an adult... And there are just these bizarre repeated scenes where the villain is fixating on the power. And, and Charles <laughs> is just like, I use your magic on the power. <laughs> just like, Sindel's just like, what? <laughs> you people are crazy. <laughs> and like, as the viewer, as someone with like a passing knowledge of Star Wars, you're just watching this thinking, but you're not native to this planet. You, you must have like been left here by a spaceship. You know about space travel. Why is this so hard for you to understand? (laughs) (laughs) They've been there so long they've forgotten. Yeah, exactly. There's like it's like amnesia, kind of. I think maybe there's some sort of like amnesia field on the planet that causes people to gradually lose all their knowledge of technology. It's very weird. Yeah. So in a way, it like has that even grander sense of disconnectedness from the Star Wars universe than what we were talking about with Caravan of Courage because even the concept of space travel is seems foreign or magical to these characters. Yeah. No, definitely. And yeah, I, I just don't understand the reasoning behind it. I would love to get one of the Wheat Brothers and just say, hey, what was the thinking here? Was something cut out? <laughs> it just... Yeah. Or maybe they are native. I don't know. It's not It's not clear. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's just a bit frustrating. If anyone knows the history of the marauder species, whether they're native to Endor, etc., etc., please write in because we want all those Ewok world-building details. It's very important to us. Um, so, yeah, they just they kill all of Sindel's family really soon into the movie. And then, I guess because it's like Sindel has to learn to 
stand on her own two feet it's now like her coming of age in a sense but she's like five yeah so exactly and i feel like the film actually undermines that because sindel really is just as helpless as ever in this film you know there are little moments where she has agency you know and she gets to be assertive and like do things to help herself but she makes some pies yeah makes some pies but in terms of like the main plot function like she's mainly there to be like protected and cared for by the other characters you know by wicket and then by noah mainly um Hmm. and again she's five (laughs) so of course but yeah it's i think it just reinforces the fact it was a strange decision to kill off the entire family and i actually have a quote here from the essay that we we were reading from last time so that's the battle for Endor, Ewok television films as transmedia brand extension by J. Richard Stevens in the book, The Transmedia Franchise of Star Wars TV. So I'll read this out quickly. It's just a short quote. Lucas reportedly had seen the movie Heidi with his daughter Amanda, whose favourite character in Caravan of Courage was Sindel. This inspiration doomed the other members of the Tawani family, a decision that made the legacy of the first film awkward. What should a viewer think on subsequent screenings rooting for characters who would almost all perish in the first 10 minutes of the next film? Furthermore, given the strong predestination trope presented in the first film, the family members' deaths in the beginnings of in the beginning of the second make the Ewok lore and mysticism, not to mention Chukatrok's sacrifice, seemingly meaningless. <laughs> I love this guy. He like just has access to these films on the next level um, but i think he's completely right um because yeah if you do think about it too hard and too long it does just render the previous film completely pointless because the whole point of caravan of courage is to rescue the parents and to... and for mace to like get to his adulthood stage by by rescuing them and like being an independent adult exactly yeah like the catharsis to the whole film is basically his dad going well done son or some some words to that effect you know and they're all dead so none of it matters (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I just think george wasn't thinking it through you know in terms of how these films would intersect i think it does kind of underline the fact that these films are basically made as indulgences you know, so obviously the first one was made because Amanda loved the Ewoks, and the second movie was basically made because Amanda really she liked Heidi and she really liked Sindel. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're just these bizarrely like big, elaborate personal gifts from a father to his daughter, basically. So they're quite sweet, but they just don't really make sense as conventional stories because of that reason. Kind of, do you know what I mean? Not not together. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like they're a duology, but you... I don't know. I'm thinking of them as like separate stories because it is like, wow, they're just massacred within the first 10 minutes of this movie. Yeah. It's very, very brutal. Especially... Yeah, no, we're going to talk about the Twani family in a minute, so I won't say that right now. Um, but yeah, I really did quite like the Heidi element of the story, I must say, even if it did render the events of Caravan of Courage completely moot. Um, because, yeah, I think that dynamic is really sweet between the characters. And yeah. we'll talk about like Noah a bit more in a minute, but I think Wilford Brimley did a really good job. He's easily the best acting performance in either of these films. Oh, I agree, yeah. The acting in this film is much better. <laughs> yeah, no, so I found all that stuff very endearing. Um, I actually had an interesting point 
that is kind of contradictory to a point you made earlier, Kirsty. So I'm curious to hear your response to this. My note in the show notes was basically that the story to me felt a little bit less enclosed because in the previous film, like so many of the characters were Ewoks and that film is so embedded in like Ewok culture, you know, and like Ewok traditions. Whereas in this one, the Ewoks barely feature, you know, like they're there at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, they're like in the background. And then at the end, when they're set free, they help with the battle against the Marauders, but they're not really present in any significant way, you know. Um, I think Wicket plays a larger part, but the Ewoks in general, yeah, it's just like they happen to be there because you're on Endor. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. They could be any alien species, basically. They didn't have think to be Ewoks. At the end, yeah, it's kind of summed up when Sindel's saying goodbye and she's she's saying goodbye to Teak, who isn't an Ewok, but is this other kind of non-verbal creature. Yes. And, um, and Wicket, and she's like, oh, I'll come back and see both of you. And the other Ewoks are standing right there, <laughs> but she doesn't even acknowledge them. <laughs> yes, that's a really good point. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Oh. That is so funny. Very callous in the way only a child could be. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, that's a good transition, actually. So I did want to briefly go through the characters in turn. Um, so yeah, with Sindel, I, I really did feel the little actress playing her had improved a lot between films. Because she was only a year older, you know, not a lot of time had passed. But I think that year made a big difference. Because, yeah, she's not... Again, like, I'm going to reference Drew Barrymore because that's the like famous 80s child actor, you know. But yeah, she's not a Drew Barrymore, but I think she was perfectly fine and did a good job, you know, for such a young child in this film. I agree. Yeah, much greater nuance of emotion. And I think at the end, she's even she's even crying. So, you know, um, yeah, yeah, a, a lovely little performance. Yeah. And they really pulled on the heartstrings as well with some of those scenes, especially the ones with her and her father and her and Noah, um, which I want to get to in more detail when we talk about Noah. Um, But yeah, you know, like just seeing like her cry and get all upset, you know, because obviously it's these highly emotive situations. I really like felt for her, you know, and I was thinking like, God, this is awful. You know, this little actress, how much can she distinguish between fantasy and reality when she's (laughs) being told to act like her whole family is dead? (laughs) I hope her mum is literally right there next to the camera. That she knows it's all, all okay <laughs> yeah oh to gosh. do I, I couldn't help this so I'm sorry for bringing this up but when I was like thinking about the the scenes of these family members dying and like Sindel's response to it and everything I was like it feels like a bigger deal is being made out of this in the Ewok movies than Ben Solo dying <laughs> And Ray's response to that. Yeah, that's true, actually. So <laughs> I was just like, this is a weird situation where there's like, like sense of closure, especially with her father. You know, he's like, I'll always be with you. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's kind of nice, even as this horrible thing's happening. Maybe Ray Carson <laughs> was thinking of Battle for Endor when she added that line into the novelization. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, but yeah, no, you're right. And I appreciate that, you know, so I feel like that level of writing wasn't there in Caravan of Courage. You know, it did really genuinely engage with Sindel's emotions and what mm. going through all that trauma would do to someone, even a young child. And yeah, I really respected that. Yeah, I, I think Aubrey did a lovely job. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and yeah, it's very hard to find interviews with Aubrey about working on these films. And the reason for that is obviously because she was so young, she can't remember anything. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, she did actually give a statement when Wilford Brimley passed away quite recently, I think last year, I think it might have been actually. Um, and yeah, I'll just read that out briefly. It's one of the very few comments we have from her about working on this film. I was saddened to hear the news of the passing of Wilford Brimley. I was so young while filming that I do not have specific memories of working with him. I do know it was always fun to be on set, and I can only imagine it was his kindness that made it so enjoyable. I'm sad for his family, and they are in my prayers. So that's a very nice little statement, basically. Bless her. Yeah. I really do like her interactions with the character of Noah. Yeah. Very very sweet. Yeah. No, they're really sweet. And yeah, Noah was a great character. He... He looks like Santa Claus. <laughs> we, were, we were watching the end of it this morning and my husband, as a joke, was like, is that George Lucas? <laughs> nice. oh, I like that. George Lucas with a few extra pounds, maybe. Bless him. Um, but yeah, no, I thought he was a really well done character. You know, he's like an archetype. Um, and yeah, he... he I don't know, I feel like he just, he committed to it, you know, in a way I think most of the other adult actors in these films do not commit, you know, it seemed like he was bringing some level of seriousness to the performance that, yeah, I just really appreciated. Yeah, I think he understood what he was doing and I guess it's it's a classic kind of get off my lawn cantankerous old man character for this kind of children's tale, so he maybe had like a, a good framework to work with there Yeah. Um, in a way that like parents of the characters might not like they're just kind of like awkwardly there yeah um yeah i think he had a lot more to work with so it was a good role and it's yeah it's kind of sweet to see him go through the motions of like oh i don't want these people in my house i like living on my own and then <laughs> warming up to them yeah exactly who could resist Sindel and wicket they're just too cute um yeah <laughs> we actually have another quote from stevens on the noah character could you read out those quotes please kirsty as in the theatrical Star Wars films, the television films repeatedly reproduce well-worn stereotypes. Lucas's intentionality in using recognisable patterns and tropes can be considered part of his style, the signalling of nostalgia to transport younger members of the audience to safe and predictable narrative terrain. An example where this approach works well is recognising the true nature of Wolf and Brimley's Noah, a prickly curmudgeon whose frustration at being marooned drives him to seek to preserve isolation. Brimley's previous roles in Cocoon and The Natural had involved characters who started off as cynical and world-weary, but later found wonder and joy through the experiences of others. The Battle for Endor presents Noah as a stereotype of the same character. Read against the Star Wars context, the turmoil and questioning from the 1970s political environment initially strands his cultural authority so that he seeks retreat from the social world. And yet, the plight of the younger generation draws him from his security to embrace the challenges of family and ultimately risk his life and freedom in heroic fashion to save Sindel and to rejoin the social world. I wonder if Ryan Johnson watched this in preparation for The Last Jedi. Wow. Yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, Noah the is the template for old Luke Skywalker. Oh my god. I mean, Mind blown. Come on. Mind blown. <laughs> We should just dedicate a whole episode to that, Kirsty. Just do a deep dive parallel between Luke and Noah. It just struck me as I was watching it again. I was like, he's Luke. Like, telling Ray to get off his acto lawn. Yeah, if Ray were five. <laughs> you know, Master Skywalker. <laughs> oh my god. Um, but yeah, there's just such sweet, tender moments between them. It's really adorable. 
There's just something about like seeing him like holding Sindel on his knee that just totally like melted my heart. I, I think I'm just easy to please sometimes, you know. <laughs> and yeah, and just like him, you know, like playing the flute or whatever the instrument was, and like Wicket and Sindel dancing and. Yeah, just the whole thing with Teak, because at the start of the film, I get the impression there's some sort of like pre-established relationship between, <laughs> make it sound like a romance. <laughs> <laughs> between... No, but I agree. They they obviously know each other and he's got this like, what are you doing? Letting these people in here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So he likes some Teak, basically. Um, and yeah, I, I thought that was sweet because that clearly signals to you that this guy isn't all bad, you know, because who could hate Teak? Teague's awesome. So. <laughs> Teague's cool. Yeah. I like Teague. Definitely. Um, and yeah, like one of the most emotionally sophisticated parts of the film was probably like that little conversation between Noah and Sindel where Sindel's talking about like her experience of loss and there's basically this parallel with Noah losing the person he crash landed on the planet with, who's Salak. Um, and yeah, they just have a really nice conversation so, Kirsty, I thought this would be a great moment for us to read out a conversation between Noah and Sindel, and because you've proven you do a great Wilford Brimley impression. Oh, no. Could you please be Noah? <laughs> well, I, then it means I sing the song, Kirsty, so unless you want to sing okay. the song. Well, no, no. no. <laughs> okay, so I'm Sindel. Okay, oh god, I've got to be Sindel. What am I doing? <laughs> okay. Do you think Salak is dead? I think so. By now, he must be. My family is too. Makes me feel sad. You miss them? Mm-hmm. I miss them a lot. They're not gone, you know. They're right here in your heart. Did you know that? Can you remember the last thing your father said to you? Mm-hmm. I'll always be with you. See what I mean? And if you remember that, and if you remember all the things he said to you, and if you remember how much he loved you, then he'll never be gone. But it hurts. So you think about the happy things. Tell me about your mother. What do you remember about her that makes you happy? She used to sing me a song. Do you remember the song? Mm-hmm. Well, sing it to me. My star keeps me company and leads me through the night. My star watches over me and fills my dreams with light. Some things change, but some things shine forever as they are. In the sky, shining high, my star. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, by the way, just to provide complete clarity, that is not the tune of the song in... I was going to say, if you could remember the actual tune of that. I feel like she was singing so quietly, I could barely hear Yeah, it. no, it was kind of very muffled, I think. Um... But yeah, like I think that's a performance as good as, if not better than, Aubrey Miller's now. <laughs> um, and yeah, basically at the end of the film, I do like that Noah and Sindel actually manage to leave together and return to civilization, because at least it means that even though we didn't get any more of these movies, it ends in a good place, you know, because if they were just stuck there still, it would kind of be like, oh, well, I guess we never got the end of that story. <laughs> You know, but it feels like enough of an ending to be satisfying. You know, the fact that we know they're going off to rejoin civilization. It has me wondering what he does with Sindel. Like, does he just drop her off at the nearest orphanage or does he raise her? 
Yeah, I couldn't really find very specific information on this. Um, on the Wikipedia page for Noah, it just says he retired to the Midrim and Sindel grew up and moved to Coruscant and became a news reporter. So apparently that's what happened. So I'm choosing to believe that Noah raised her, basically, and lived to a grand old age and got to see her get her graduation diploma in journalism from the University of wherever and <laughs> was very proud of her. <laughs> Because, yeah, nice. poor little Sindel definitely needs some sort of parental presence in her life at this point. So, yeah, it's very good. Um, okay, so let's move on to Charel. Is that how you say her name? She's the witch character played by Sean Phillips. Is her name ever said out loud? I feel like it is, sure. at least once. Probably by Tarak, because Tarak's... Well, his voice is like... (laughs) 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 Probably wouldn't give us the best sense of the pronunciation. Let's just say Charol, then. Um, Okay. Yeah, what's your thoughts on Charol? What did you think about her? I liked her. I feel like the villains in general are much better in this movie. Yeah. It, like, really raises the stakes. And I feel like, obviously, is, like, the human kind of witchy character. I guess she's not properly human-ish. She's a witch of Dathomir, I presume. Um... Yeah, probably the most compelling. And she gives a perfectly fine performance. Um, it's just a kind of a question of like, it, it raises all these questions of, okay, so what's her relationship with Tarek? And like, how long have they been in cahoots? And why? Like, what is in this for her? Because yeah. it's not clear. So I'm like, you could probably leave anytime. You have magic. So. Yeah, what are you doing with this loser? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I definitely didn't get like any sort of romantic vibes between them. I'm sure someone out there is shipping them. <laughs> AO3, Sindel. Um, no. Oh, God, no, not Sindel. Oh, oh no. Charol. Sorry. It's female characters with names beginning with C, basically. It's confusing me. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't want to read Charol and Tarek fanfiction, but I'm sure it exists. So if you're right, you happen to be writing that, good for you. Good for you. Um,. But yeah, she has like an awesome aesthetic. She's yeah, it's a good performance. Um, yeah, she's she's good. Yeah, like I feel like it's a bit of like a rock chick aesthetic, you know, like it's in like hard rock, you know, like proper like stereotypical eighties rock, which would make sense because obviously it's a very eighties film in the design. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a bit camp, I suppose. But that's not a bad thing. I quite like camp costume design. So yeah, I think she looks pretty fabulous. Yeah, and she can transform into like a raven like that's that's cool and she can also transform into a young woman which is also impressive yeah they had the classic like ooh the girl in with me looking like a young beautiful princess with a white horse and then haha I'm secretly on my black horse (laughs) (laughs) and then I'm evil I'm gonna whisk you away yeah I did think that scene was um, quite well done though because it follows on from the performance of the song that Sindel gives and you hear like a female voice singing that song and it's clearly meant to signify that Sindel believes it's her mother calling to her basically and they don't play that up too much but I felt like that was quite effective you know taking that emotional moment and actually using it to make it a plot point so yeah I enjoyed that yeah it's like Cheryl can sense the vulnerability of the moment for Sindel emotionally so she's like oh if I pretend to be her mum yeah Exactly. And she hears the song. Yeah. She's mine, and this five-year-old will reveal the source of the power. <laughs> <laughs> so that scene when Charol drags Sindel into the throne room in front of Tarek and <laughs> they're demanding that this small child explains this like piece of technology to them. It's so funny. 
Because, like you said earlier, Kirsty, Sindel's just like it's just, what? It's just a piece of the spaceship. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, that's what's funny about it because it's like the audience is in the exact same position of Sindel, even though we're not five years old. I guess we're not meant to be the audience. We're not the target, but um. It is just like this thing where what the villains want makes no sense and they just kind of come across as stupid even though they're also really dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> it's just Sally. like there's no grand plan here. There's no understanding. They've just made this embarrassing mistake. <laughs> yeah, it makes it like a bit of a farce, I think, when you're watching it as a grown-up, you know, it's just kind of funny. <laughs> and that's okay, you know, as long as it's enjoyable, it's all good. Um, I did actually find some interesting background on like the journey of the Cheryl character because the thing is when Battle Friendal was written she definitely was not a Night Sister or Witch of Daphomir that came in later so yeah could you right. read out the relevant section please Kirsty Cheryl's exact origins and background remained a mystery until 1995 when Kevin J. Anderson retconned her into a Witch of Daphomir in the illustrated Star Wars universe the Force Witches had been created a year earlier in Dave Wolverton's novel The Courtship of Princess Leia during development of the Night Sister episodes of Star Wars The Clone Wars, supervising director Dave Filoni made sketches of Charol and considered including her in the show. Charol was indirectly mentioned in Daniel Wallace's Book of Sith, Secrets from the Dark Side, in the Wild Power section. In it, Clan, Mother Clan Mother Talzin mentions that one of our sisters has yet to return the Talisman of the Raven. In his end notes for the Book of Sith, Wallace revealed that the Talisman of the Raven was specifically created as a reference to Charol and her magic. That's cool. It's really cool. And it makes me sad that none of that is canon anymore. I really would like for Cheryl to still be canon. You know, bring Cheryl back. I'm going to start the petition now. I, you know, I was kind of joking last time about the fact that they've put this out there on this vintage collection on Disney Plus means that maybe they're more likely to start incorporating it, but maybe they will. Yeah. So I feel like you know? Cheryl is one of the things that it would be easiest to like repurpose. They need to, you know, change her story from what's in Battle for Endor because just going by Battle for Endor, she's a complete idiot. You know? <laughs> and usually characters who are just a bit thick, they're not the most interesting. Um, so, yeah, like, I would like to see Cheryl reincorporated into the sacred canon if she were, like, written in a more compelling way, you know, because, like, a shape-shifting witch, that's really cool. Especially, like, a shape-shifting witch who's, like, in cahoots with, like, a gang of fucks, you know? If you write that in a more intelligent way, where she's, like, using them or manipulating them for her own purposes somehow, that could be a really cool story. I swear the Marauders are, like, a precursor to the Knights of Ren. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Same level of intelligence. Oh, sorry. <laughs> a bit thick. Yeah, no, definitely. The Marauders are just... I do think they're good villains. You know, they're definitely better than the Gorax was in Caravan of Courage because Gorax is just like, no, there was like a nut. It just wasn't a character, you know. Whereas like Tarak, at least there's sort of like a discernible hierarchy, I guess, in this film. You know, you get a sense of like a culture with the Marauders. Um, I did actually notice that their throne room looked a bit like um, Jareth's throne room from Labyrinth. <laughs> Yeah. But like a less fun version because, yeah, obviously there's no David Bowie among the Marauders, sadly. Yeah. Again, I feel like the Marauders and Tarek could be rehabilitated for a new canon story if they wanted, you know? Like, you just kind of have to sharpen their motives a bit more and contextualize them as, like, yeah, decide are they from Endor or are they not? Like, what what are they about? Yeah. 
So they could do it where they are like also native to Endor, but they've mostly stayed very separate from the Ewoks. But now they want to like get out into the galaxy. So they've heard rumors about all this intergalactic travel, and then they become obsessed with the power. <laughs> Sorry, it just makes the interactions they have with other characters. It, they just kind of quickly come to this stop, where it's like he's talking to Jeremy, like make the power work give us the power we want the power and then has the exact convers you know make it work make it work it's like what are you talking about <laughs> there's no evolution of understanding there it honestly makes you think of like a toddler and like their toy has run out of batteries or something and they're like pointing to the toy and asking why toy no work because <laughs> the batteries are not charged and like you know how many times you explain it it's just not getting through because they're a toddler you know it's that level of intelligence Sorry, toddlers, I don't mean to um, condescend you. Um, okay, so let's move into the Tawani family. Um, so obviously that will sound like a joke because we've already discussed that they're basically all killed in the first five minutes. Um, but I think there's still things to say. So the status quo is that Mrs. Tawani's basically dead or grievously injured from the first time she's seen in this movie. And poor Mace is like dragging off his wounded or dead mother into a hut. Like, you very briefly see Mace firing his gun at some of the marauders, but then they're basically blown up in the hut, essentially, you know, and they're very dead at that point. Um, whereas Mr. Tawani, or Jeremy, uh, to give him his proper name, um, is a- around in a more significant way, because Sindel runs to him, basically, after seeing Mace and her mother die, which is just a dark, dark sentence. Um, and yeah, they have a really, really emotional scene that I feel is one of the best acted. You know, it's on the same level of, as like the Noah and Sindel scene. So yeah, yeah, I thought that was a really well done part of the movie. Um, did you like that exchange, Kirsty? Yeah, I think these skilled actors can get a greater performance out of Aubrey as well because it's got to be difficult for her with you know just kind of exchanging, especially with these characters who are in costumes like Wicket and Tarek and everything, I think when they're like authoritative figures in her life, I feel like it's just, they kind of lead it for her. You know, there's the emotion already there. And I, I think they did a really good job. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, I think they really like elevate the whole thing and absolutely make it easier for Aubrey to be more compelling in that part. Yeah, so most of the like behind the scenes stuff I could find out about the massacre of the Tawani family was obviously from Eric, Eric, poor Eric Walker's perspective. Um, so he played Mace and obviously he was very disappointed at being written out. Um, so we have a few quotes from him. Uh, the first is from StarWarsInterviews.com. Could you read out what I've highlighted, please, Kirsty? In the beginning of Battle for Endor, your character gets killed by the Marauders. Did this feel as a disappointment and when did you find out that this would happen to Mace? In Ewok Adventure, you were one of the two major characters, and now your part ended in such an unworthy way. Of course it was a big disappointment. I was originally told by Aubrey Miller's parents that I was cut totally out of the movie, and the biggest disappointment was that neither Lucas nor anyone at Lucasfilm bothered to tell me. I still remember my father sitting me down and telling me the bad news. It's a day I'll never forget, and I cried that night until I finally fell asleep. Then suddenly, about a month later, I got a call from my agent saying I was offered a smaller part in the movie. I was so happy to be a part of it that I jumped at the chance. I wanted to show the world that Mace would not go down easy, but fighting. It is genuinely really sad, though. <laughs> because he was just a yeah, kid I at don't... the time. And I thought that's really out of order, you know, that Lucasfilm didn't reach out to him directly to 
explain that this was being done you know for like that i've gotta say i've no just through doing this podcast i've noticed this is a pretty unfortunate pattern from lucas and lucasfilm they don't tell people when they're being cut from things Mm. yeah kind of rude yeah (laughs) especially when they're a child come on exactly yeah so it's clear that you know eric walker takes a lot of pride in being involved in star wars you know he's given a lot of interviews so it's still something that he's very opinionated and passionate about um and yeah you can tell he's just a bit scarred by it you know and i think his example underlines why it is so important to have that dialogue with your actors you know and just as a courtesy you know send them a letter make a phone call you know just let them know (laughs) it's not hard Mm -hmm. so yeah it sucks um and yeah, Eric also gave a few more comments about the film and like what he would have done differently. Um, and yeah, could you just read those out, please, Kirsty? Mace was killed very early in the battle for Endor. How did you feel because of that? I always thought that was really unlike Lucas. I would have loved to see Mace evolve in another adventure. Now that many years have passed, how do you look back at that decision to kill all of Sindel's family? It was a terrible one decision, to kill the entire family except Sindel. He did not have to do that. He could have just sent us away on a mission to get a part to finish fixing the Star Cruiser, leaving Sindel with the, the Ewoks to take care of her. It would have created a better story and a story within a story that they cut back to every once in a while, then have us all return or help at the end, letting us all leave with Noah. It would have achieved the same thing Lucas wanted in creating a Star Wars version of Heidi. I'm sure if anyone asked Lucas about it now, he would say he regretted it, because I believe that he's a humble man. When Battle for Endor came out, it got very bad reviews here in the USA. No one likes the fact that he killed off the entire family and my character Mace when he spent so much time setting everything up in the first movie. In fact, one reviewer said, You just killed off your main audience. It also had much lower ratings than Caravan of Courage and did not make as much money overseas in the movie theatre as the first one. What did you think of the Battle of Endor? I really liked Aubrey and Warwick's performances and Fort Teak was cute. It would have been a great movie on its own if it was the first movie and not the second one. Then nothing would have been lost. They spent more money on the second movie on the special effects with a lot more actors and it showed on screen. It's a good movie but it would have been better if it was on its own and was not a sequel. I have to agree with him there because I think it is a better movie in and of itself but as part of the same story it is strange to kill off those characters who you're supposed to care about and you as he says you could have just kind of removed them from the situation without killing them and then they could have been all reunited at the end with then leaving yeah because you do kind of feel this like yeah you're happy for Sindel and Noah to leave but you are a bit worried about Sindel from that point (laughs) her family is still dead and she's five years old yeah exactly um yeah, I I've, I totally agree. I think all of Eric Walker's points here are great. And it's just amazing to me because they're so like logical, you know, and it kind of like indicates like a weird kind of like bloodthirstiness almost. And George Lucas' part the... is like, just kill him, just kill him. This was at the point where George was going through a pretty nasty divorce. Mm, so yeah. I'll, you know, I'll... I think maybe that might have played a part in how he was feeling. Yeah, Who knows? Perhaps. It clearly did stuff to his psyche, poor guy. Um, well, I just don't... I just don't know. I mean, it just seems like it. the darkness kind of fills the movie. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and, and we're not obviously being like completely serious and making definitive statements about George Lucas' state of mind, so we have no idea. Um, but, 
yeah, it's just a curious decision, I think it's safe to say. Um, and yeah, I think it's also just that fundamental point about Battlefront or I, I think it's definitely the stronger movie of the two, but it also doesn't make sense narratively as a sequel to Caravan of Courage, basically. So yeah, I think Eric Walker should have written Battlefriend, or I think he would have done a great <laughs> job. Although then it would probably have been like 95% mace, bless him. <laughs> so. But I wouldn't have mind that because by the end of Caravan of Courage, mace is, is a fine character, you yeah. know? No, it's true. Yeah, he's definitely like a much more refined person at that point. Yeah, like a much more noble spirit, you could say. And yeah, I guess we don't, I do have a section of like Wicket, the other Ewoks antique. I don't really have much to say. Like, <laughs> just Teak is really cute. I like Teak's ability to move super fast. I think that's quite well done in the movie, and it ha- means there's some really nice gags. I well, yeah, I especially like Teak stealing food for Sindel and Wicket early in the movie, and like sneaking past Noah to give it to them. I thought that was adorable. Um, yeah, there's some pretty good effects with Teak's movement and um, the blurgs as well, like that stop motion. Um, I-, I I think. Yeah, as he said, like the budget for the special effects, you can kind of see. I cannot see it with the costume design for the Marauders. I think they look bad. Yeah, it's like cheap rubber masks, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I have seen better Halloween masks, I must say. Um, But the effects are pretty good for Teak and, yeah, the blood. Yeah, I'm also impressed by that castle. So I presume it was filmed in America and I didn't realise there were like big grand castles like that in America. But yeah, the Ewoks are there. But they're surprisingly marginal, I guess, would be my take. And yeah. Well, I know what you mean, because like Wicket plays a larger part in that he's on screen more, but he's kind of just along for the ride with Sindel and kind of agreeing with her on stuff. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's not really, there's not really an arc for Wicket as such, is there? You know, he doesn't like go on any sort of journey. He's just there like as an assist. I guess... I guess the arc is him learning to get to the point where he'll be okay saying goodbye to Sindel. Because he's really sad when they're leaving at the beginning. Yeah. And then, of course, she can't leave. So maybe on some level, Wicket's happy that Sindel's family are dead so that she has to stay. But then, you know, she does have to say goodbye at the end. And he's like, oh, goodbye, sad. <laughs> and there's all the fills. She, she is his best friend. Yeah. He doesn't want her to go. No, it's true. It's highly emotive. But at that point, he also has Teak. Yeah. So, you know, didn't know Teak beforehand. Exactly. Teak can be the new buddy. But then what happens to Teak by the time Return of the Jedi comes around her? Is Teak brutally <laughs> murdered? <laughs> oh, no. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, but yeah, I just briefly wanted to close out by looking at some of the contemporary reviews from the time the film was released. Um, one of these is actually less of a review and more just like a think piece on the film's relationship to Caravan of Courage, which is kind of interesting considering everything we've just discussed, particularly Eric Walker's comments. Uh, yeah, So this is from the New York Times. This time, the Ewoks are action-oriented. Say immediately that this doesn't mean the Ewoks now practice rude and aggressive behaviour. They do not. Moreover, they are still warm and cuddly. But as Thomas G. Smith, the producer, says in a publicity release... Last year's film had a strong acceptance among young children, while teenagers and some adults found it lacking in excitement. I love that they're just say that in a publicity release. You know, it's like really slamming their own film. Wow. Um, the new Ewok television movie is closer to the kinds of films that we at Lucasfilm have been working on all these years. 
Therefore, we get a battle or two, laser beam weapons, a wicked simian-looking king, a creature called Teak, who looks a little like a billy goat and is altogether appealing, and a large number of Lucasfilm special effects. Mr. Lucas and his colleagues are famous for their special effects, and ever since the 1977 Star Wars, they've been altering the technology of films. Indeed, the technology is the thing, and a television viewer or moviegoer can recognise Lucas' production even without the credits. Meanwhile, grant that Mr. Lucas's works may have epic themes, battles between good and evil, loosely speaking, but the actual stories are almost incidental. So yeah, it's not. It's kind of like more of a general statement, you know, more than specifically about Battle for Endor, but I still found it interesting, especially the part about the publicity release. Yeah, I mean, coming back to the Ewoks being action-oriented, the pacing is definitely different. Oh yeah. Like, the the pacing for Caravan of Courage is so slow and ambling, and it makes sense for the story, because they are kind of on this caravan where they're, they're travelling, yeah. right? And they, they're encountering things as they go, but Battle for Endor is more of like this tightly knit story of you know lots of things happening this sounds silly but now i'm thinking about it i'm like which movie do i prefer because mm. i do think battle for endor is better in that it's like it keeps me engaged a bit more i feel battle for endor also has quite a dark heart so i understand that being like a bit harder to yeah reconcile. I, think it, I think it's whatever you're in the mood for yeah it's an ewok movie for everyone <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, Okay, cool. Then we also have a review from the Washington Post. It's quite long, so I've just highlighted the parts that I think are most interesting to read out, Kirsty. If you could read them. Wilford Brimley gives the movie's best performance as the gruff but kindly old man who grudgingly befriends Sindel and Wicket. But the real scene-stealer is Brimley's companion, Teak, an irresistible little creature with a mischievous grin, ears that flop at right angles and an uncontrollable giggle that makes him sound like Alvin the Chipmunk. Teak moves and fast forward, occasionally zipping headlong into a tree but never seeming to lose his good humour. Kids who loved Yoda will certainly love him. Families with small children should know that despite the extended periods of laser firing and arrow shooting, the violence in this movie is really quite mild. Creatures' bodies hit the dirt with reckless abandon but no blood is shed. Sindel learns of her family's demise when the lights on her wristband go out. Families with big children should know that the tale is a simple one with no surprises but plenty of charm. As Sindel prepares to leave Endor, she looks into the upturned faces of Wicket and Teak and tearfully proclaims, I'll come back and visit you as soon as I can. Anyone with half a heart can't help but hope she means it. Now, I find this interesting because obviously I know Eric Walker was talking in general terms. He wasn't saying every single review said X. But you wouldn't imagine a review would have this sort of tone based on his comments. So I think it's like... Well, he's talking from personal disappointment. Of course, yeah, yeah. No, so I think you, you've got... That's really the point. You've got to take like Eric's comments in with the knowledge that Eric is obviously very upset about the fact he was killed off in the movie in the first five minutes. So yeah, he is going to have a very negative perception. Um, but yeah, it seems like some, at least some contemporary reviewers liked it, basically. And yeah, Teak seems to have been quite popular. You know, there's been lots of Teak praise in the reviews that I've found. He's very endearing. He is, yeah. I think he's a really good addition. I'm, like, surprised that, to the best of my knowledge, there aren't, like, Teak toys and stuff. Because you'd think that'd be a perfect opportunity. But I guess the toy makers did not agree. (laughs) It's very sad. Um, And yeah, do you think Sindel returned to Endor one day, Kirsty, to see her friends again? I do. Oh. Yeah, I'd like to imagine that. Maybe, as you say, as a teenager or older, 
but she made her way back when she could. Yeah. No, I feel like it's too sad if they never saw each other again. Um, and yeah, we don't have time to like consider or ruminate on the implications of this in depth. But I was informed before we recorded that apparently um, in the Legends canon, so it's no longer canon but used to be, they essentially tried to explain away the Ewok movies as movies that existed in-universe. So the Legends rationale, to the best of my understanding, was that Sindel and the Twani family did actually crash on Endor. Her family did all die on Endor and she did eventually leave with this Noah character. Um, and she wrote books about her experiences, but the books were a bit like exaggerated and fictionalized, and then they were adapted into movies that were even more fictionalized. Uh, and then apparently there's like a reference in one of the Legends books to Alana Solo, who's the daughter of Jason Solo, and thus the granddaughter of Leia and Han, um, like watching one of the Ewok movies. <laughs> it just blows my mind, guys, okay? I just find that an incredible fact. So thank you to sorry, just find the name of the person who told me. Thank you to Jesse Jarrett for telling me that because yeah, that blew my mind and it's fascinating. It is fascinating because the thought of these as like the entertaining version of what really happened <laughs> is hilarious. Yes. Especially Caravan of Courage. <laughs> Whose idea of entertainment is that? <laughs> <laughs> just like could you maybe have thought of a few more interesting things to happen? Yes, exactly. Oh my god. But I like I like the sense of it as a fictionalized kind of legend in universe because that's kind of how you're supposed to view all of Star Wars really, isn't it? It's the whole depends on your point of view and every story is told from a certain perspective and you know you'll get different versions of the same story you know between like the novelizations and the movies and everything. So kind of adds to that. Yeah. No, exactly. I think it's part of like the grand tradition of ambiguous Star Wars storytelling. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, you're never quite sure about the truth of what you're seeing on screen. Um, and yeah, I, I quite like that uncertainty, to be honest. Although I do also just like the fact... I, I also like the idea of the Ewok movies as just completely literal, factual renderings of stuff that actually happened. Because I, I just like really stupid villains. I think they're often really funny and... Yeah, the Marauders and Chirrell in this movie are all extremely stupid and that makes them quite entertaining <laughs> to me. So yeah, I had a good time. Me too. Yeah. So yeah, I hope people enjoyed us for this Ewok adventure. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and yeah, we'll be back with more Ewok goodness because we're going to get to that animated show at some point. I don't know when. Uh, eventually. I don't know when. Yeah, we won't like be making it like in a super priority. Hopefully Kirsty will get to read The Rising Storm quite soon. So yeah, I'm excited to discuss that. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, anything you want to say, Kirsty, before we close things out? I don't think so. I mean, if people have somehow listened to us but not actually checked these out, just give them a try. Put on Disney Plus and at least check out those first 10 minutes of Battle for Endor because it's nuts. Yeah, definitely. It's <laughs> honestly some of the most intense Star Wars there is. And I'm not saying of any irony or exaggeration, it just genuinely is. You know, it's like on the level of Luke returning to the homestead to find in the skeletons of his aunt and uncle outside. You know, it is it that is dark. It's really bold. Yeah, it is bold. Um, so yeah, I'm Rachel and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kersey and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye!